0: One of the great things about hosting a podcast is having an opportunity to talk with leaders that are really redefining the field of HR and reshaping what it means to practice HR. And today's conversation is very much aligned with uh, that framing. I'm excited to be joined in today's episode by HubSpot's Chief People Officer, Katie Burke. And we're going to talk uh, at length about the culture code that they've developed, but really not just the deck itself, but how it actually is woven into all elements of the employee experience and the people operations team and the culture within HubSpot. So we're going to dig into that and much more after a brief word from our sponsor. 21st Century HR is a podcast exploring how to build better businesses through modern people practices and approaches. brought to you by my firm, Amplify. Amplify provides HR executive search and strategic consulting services that help companies build better organizations. From employer brand development and execution to global talent strategies, Amplify develops custom solutions that help clients from Hootsuite to SpaceX optimize their recruiting capabilities. Amplify also hosts a new community for HR leaders called the Ecosystem. The Ecosystem was designed to bring modern HR leaders around the world together to share ideas, inspiration, and support. Learn more at amplifytalent.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 21st Century HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and I am thrilled to be joined today by HubSpot's Chief People Officer, Katie Burke. Katie and I are going to talk about the culture code deck that HubSpot has created that really illuminates the unique culture within HubSpot. And we're going to talk about what went into the creation of that deck uh, and really how that's evolved as the organization has evolved over the last several years since it was first created. So, Katie, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, if you don't mind, why don't you give the listeners just a brief introduction on your background?
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Lars. Delighted to be hanging out with you for a little bit. Uh, I am, as you mentioned, the Chief People Officer at HubSpot. We are a growth platform and a CRM company primarily focused on the mid market. Uh, so, think companies 20 to 200 to 2,000 employees ish. So, think uh, right around the mid market segment. Uh, we are based in Boston, but we have offices all around the world. Uh, and I am someone who was a late bloomer in the HR world. So I've only been working in the HR field for the last five years. Prior to that, I was a marketer. So I'm sure we'll touch upon that briefly, but delighted to hang out with you today.
0: Got it. Very cool. So let's let's dig right into the, the Culture Code deck. So I'm curious, You know, rewinding all the way back to the idea for creating this deck, where did that come from initially?
1: Yeah, so HubSpot's co founders are uh, Dharma Shah and Brian Halligan. And one of the things I really like about them is that from the time I joined the company in 2012, they very much embody a growth mindset. So they're constantly asking, other founders and entrepreneurs, what went well, what broke, what can we learn from both the triumphs of other companies, but also the mistakes of other companies. And at the time, Brian was part of a CEO group, a local CEO group. And one of the pieces of feedback he got was that as you scale and grow and as you prepare to go public, one of the things that can potentially uh, go off the rails pretty quickly is your culture as it scales. And that feedback came from Colin Engel, who's an amazing local CEO at iRobot. And Brian thought about it and it kind of stuck with him. And as great co-founder relationships go, he said, you know, I'm really focused on scaling the business and on getting things ready. I'm gonna hand things this off to my co-founder Dharmesh to figure out. And what Dharmesh is always fond of saying is Dharmesh is the ultimate introvert. He is the last person you think of as a people person. He's very much a technologist and introvert by trade. And so as a result, he approached developing kind of the deck and thinking about our culture as truly a product. Like, how would I develop this if it were a product? What would be most important? What kind of customer feedback would we care about it? How would we make sure it had a point of view? That kind of thing. And so one of the coolest things about our culture code is it really was an organic idea cultivated by our co-founders that all of us you know, then participated in bringing to life. Uh, but it really started with the two of them.
0: Got it. And so when you began developing the first version of the culture code, what was that process like? How did you engage your team to, you know, identify what were some of the, the kind of key pillars of of HubSpot's culture that you wanted to illuminate, both from a, a kind of current standpoint and, and really an aspirational standpoint as well?
1: Yeah, so Dharmesh started a draft and what he did was he posted it to the entire company for feedback. He solicited individual feedback from a few leaders. Uh, across the team at every level, at every tenure, that kind of thing. And then he actually presented it in slide format, uh, I believe, twice to different audiences. So it was open to any employee group. So we got a lot of employee feedback before we went live with it, both in terms of wordsmithing, structure, overall approach, marketing the document, all that kind of good stuff. However, and it's a big however, one of the things I hear from entrepreneurs often or CEOs is that they're in the process of codifying their culture. And they essentially wait until every single employee or every single leader is happy with every element of the deck and they wordsmith it to death. And what you sort of end up with is this really stale, boring document. So I've never seen a CEO who says, we want to attract average people with average interests, with average passion. Like that's just never going to happen. And one of the things I always say to people is if you're doing your culture code right, it is as important for the people it keeps out as those that it draws in. And so as a result, you actually have to be willing to have a point of view. And so I love employee engagement in getting your culture code right. And it's been critical to our success, but it's really important that people know there were employees who didn't agree with every single thing that was in it when it launched. There are still employees who don't agree with every single element of it. We believe that actually wordsmithing it and sanitizing it so that it appeals to everyone on earth is actually not the best way to give people an accurate representation of where you're culture is currently and what it stands for.
0: I think that's a really good point because, you know, oftentimes when you, when you are developing something like this, there's, there's an aspirational element to it that I think when you, when you try to get everybody to weigh in and have a a kind of uniform perspective, it's this vanilla kind of all things to all people um, statement or set of statements, and that is not—that's not uh, a not reality, you know, typically. You know, so you you end up uh, taking it in a direction that that's no longer really reflective of the company. And so, I think your point around uh, really developing it in a way that allows people to both opt in and out is really important. Um, when you went through that first process of developing it, you know, as you got feedback from employees. Um, did anything surprise you, you know, in terms of uh, either feedback that uh, employees you know connected with in the the deck, or or kind of felt strongly, uh, you know, wasn't there, or they they didn't agree with?
1: So on the connected with, uh, it wasn't totally surprising to me, but autonomy has been a core component of HubSpot's operating system from the start. So our founders very much rail against micromanagement. They hate it themselves. Uh, Most talented people I know hate being micromanaged, and so one of the things that was really interesting to me was we had a lot of slides, not surprisingly, very early on focused on autonomy and things like we care much more about the output of your work than the hours that you spend. We do not believe in FaceTime for the sake of FaceTime. We believe in hiring great people and giving them great latitude to do big things. Um, So I'm not surprised at all that people were excited about it, but it It was truly core to people's sentiment around the culture code, and it was amazing to me how many people... Uh, internally said that was imperative to them as it was going external. Um, The other thing that surprised me though was the number of people who actually didn't want us to share it with the world. They felt very much like your grandmother's chili recipe, (laughs) that like this is something near and dear and what if our competitors copy it and what if you know the company down the road copies it? And so one of the things we really had to do was instill a sense of trust that what makes our culture special is not what we say about our culture, it's what we do. And we actually believe that the matching of the rhetoric to reality and culture is so hard that very few companies do it. It's still aspirational for us every day. And so what we have to believe is that our ability to close that gap and to continue to innovate and listen to our employees and make a great product that relates to our culture is significantly higher, better, faster than uh, our competitors in the space for for competing for talent and ultimately i really believe that so we try and actually share as much as possible about what we do here externally And part of that is because of our commitment to our value of transparency. But part of it is also just because we know personally from experience how hard it is to make it all real and to live and breathe it every day. That's where the hardest work comes in. So creating the culture code was incredibly hard. Don't get me wrong. I'm not taking away from that. But living it every day is the hardest work that we do collectively as a leadership team and as a company.
0: Right. That's a great point. And I think one of the things that uh, is interesting about the... How you've approached the culture code to me is that uh, it is, it's somewhat iterative, right? Much like culture itself, it evolves and you've been at HubSpot for you know over six years. So you've seen the organization scale and evolve and the culture code has been updated kind of as, as you've evolved. So how many times, what, what version are you on right now? And what is that process like? How do you know when it's time for an update?
1: yeah so honestly, there have been too many changes to to count. We've done minor updates like just updating you know minor bugs or fixes or updating for example the number of offices or employees or customers or products have and that kind of thing, but we've also done more major changes uh, so probably the biggest and most notable one was around changing one of our core values so in two thousand 15, I believe, maybe early 2016, we changed the E in heart, which is our our value statement from effective to empathetic. And the reason that we did that was as we scaled globally, not surprisingly, one of the things that starts to break down is that notion of empathy. So for example, um, we had a Dublin office and a Sydney office at that time. And so time zones start to get into play. And so you can imagine a scenario where you're working in the sales team in Sydney, and I'm working on the product team here in Cambridge, and you share with me the customer feedback about something that we just released. I don't get around to responding first thing in the morning when I get in the next day. And as a result, the story you tell yourself is like, gosh, Katie doesn't care about any of our customers in Australia. Uh, She's not very collaborative. The company doesn't really care about Global First and that kind of thing. And so one of the things we really did at that time was to say to people, the way we're going to scale this business is really by living and breathing empathy and assuming the best of our colleagues and collaborating and also being empathetic to our customers and their needs. And so just being effective wasn't enough. Empathy was sort of the biggest missing puzzle in our operating system. And oh, by the way, it was a critical ingredient in our commitment to becoming a more diverse and inclusive company. And so when we did that update, one of the things was we asked people for feedback. We asked uh, teammates for feedback. And so we did a pretty major update to the culture code when we did that to reflect that change. Um, And so we don't have a process. We don't have a formal process. There's still an external email address where people send us feedback on the culture code. And so we take that feedback seriously. And we also take the feedback internally seriously. But we don't have a formal process partially because we've always sort of felt like we know when it needs to be updated. And the way that we know is that we regularly ask for feedback on Overall, what's working and what isn't via our quarterly employee survey. Um, And so, we don't want to over engineer the process. And also, similar to the Constitution, we don't want it to be something that's changing every day. We want it to feel like a real North Star that people can anchor their teams and our values and kind of their behavior to. And so, we need to find the right balance between changing it as we grow and scale, which is incredibly important, but also at the same time, making sure that we don't change it so often that we confuse people's behavior and and how it's informed by our by our overall approach to culture
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think finding that right balance so that employees have a kind of uh, a consistent north star around the the culture code and and what they can expect and new hires as well um versus something that's continually uh being tweaked and modified and and making them wonder okay what's is this kind of shifting sands so uh, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the things, um, uh, as I was kind of going through the pillars, one of them as a, as a recruiting guy that kind of stood out to me is, uh, the pillar of the, you know, culture is to recruiting as product is to marketing. Uh, and I think that statement is so powerful from, uh, to really reinforce the idea that, that recruiting has to be uh, a part of the entire organization. It's not just something that a team, uh, focuses on. So, you know, from, I'm curious to kind of get a sense of How does that actually, uh, you know, kind of woven into uh, how the organization approaches recruiting, particularly as you scale?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, recruiting... Just like everything else in the world has fundamentally changed by the internet, so it used to be that if you were my recruiter at HubSpot and I was a candidate, you know, 10 years ago, you had most of the power. So if I asked, you know, hey Lars, would it be okay if I chatted with someone who's in the role I'm interviewing for, you could decide if and when that was appropriate. Uh, You could give me a fancy brochure on HubSpot's culture, that kind of thing. You kind of controlled the message. And now there's more information than ever available to any candidate who wants it, which we largely think is a great thing. What that means, though, is that you don't have a traditional recruiting funnel. We think of it very much as a flywheel. And the primary driver of that flywheel is current employee experience. So right now, if someone wanted to tweet, does anyone know anyone at HubSpot? How is it actually day-to-day? What's it like? Do they live true to their culture code, that kind of thing? They don't have to come through me for that. They can do that on Twitter. They can do it on LinkedIn. They can do it on Instagram. And truly, probably on any platform, they're likely to get a response. And so as a result, it's not enough to invest in your employer brand and marketing. You really need to invest in that product every day and think of your culture as a living, breathing breathing product. And as a result, then your employees are your consumers, your customers in that case, and their experience and feedback is really the engine that drives your flywheel on the recruiting side on a day-to-day basis. And so part of what we do at HubSpot is when or if there's anything broken on the recruiting side, one of the things we do is look internally to go, okay, what's going on here? What are people saying about the experience? What can we continue to tweak? What's the feedback we're getting from candidates, employees on that? sort of thing. And one thing I really love about HubSpot is that it's part of your experience as a leader to think about the culture within your own team, to think about the culture in a given location or market And to really be thoughtful about your role in helping improve it. When we get our employee survey data back, it isn't just work for our team; it's work for every single leader. And I play, I wear two hats on that front, right? One of my jobs is bringing that data to every part of the organization, and then the other part is working that through for the core people operations team. Just like every other team at HubSpot, we have growing pains as we scale and grow. People want to know how they grow on our team, and so every leader at HubSpot bears the responsibility for making sure that they think about their teams culture and their contributions to our overall culture as a product and it makes it frankly so much easier to prioritize thinking about culture day to day as a business priority and part of our competitive advantage at HubSpot.
0: Yeah and that that makes a lot of sense. And I think when you when you think about the the culture code itself and really how that shows up in the employee experience how does that kind of connect to the employee experience? Are there any internal you know customs based on it. Uh, you know r- rituals, things that uh, you do internally that uh, kind of tie back to the culture code.
1: Yes, yeah, a bunch. So one of my favorite HubSpot traditions is we do a peer bonus every quarter, and so you are essentially given a hundred dollars cash to give to another employee, and we ask you to give that money out directly tied to one of HubSpot's values, and so. Uh, By way of example, this past quarter, I gave it to one of our executive assistants because she filled in for something that we really needed. And so the value that I attributed her hard work to was remarkability. So that's our R in heart. And so in addition to getting a note and getting obviously a nice surprise, you're getting feedback of how you actually embodied one of HubSpot's values on a day-to-day basis. And it really empowers all of our employees globally to not just see that behavior, but also reward it actively and to call that out. Uh, we also do all of our company-wide awards are focused and rooted in our overall values. And when and if we are promoting a manager or leader, that kind of thing, we actually try and tie it back to something in the culture code. So, cite an example of some way in which they've create, created uh, outpay, out you know outsized impact on our customers, or created an example of where they've leaned into flexibility and autonomy to help their employees grow. Um, that kind of thing. And so when we think about our manager training, so we, you know, as you saw, we, we focus on uh, not just hiring people who delegate, but people who elevate as managers. That's a core part of how we build out our manager training. And so ideally, the culture code is so embedded in everything we do that it's not an afterthought or something that people think about during award season or once a quarter. It's embedded so that people are thinking about it on a daily basis and how they behave and how they operate. And fundamentally, for our people managers, it's our hope that they're living and breathing that and thinking about that in every decision that they make.
0: Interesting. And I think it's it's so uh, you know unique to embed that and infuse that, you know, really kind of weave that into the DNA of how the organization operates. Um, but which, I, but I think it's also so important because if employees are really going to connect with it and and kind of use that as their guiding principles. They they need to to see how they kind of connect with that on a on a day to day basis. Um, one of the the values that uh, stood out to me, and I, and I think a lot of organizations talk about this, but as as I kind of dug into the the deck a bit more, and obviously just from following HubSpot, I've I've seen examples of this. But it's around transparency. Uh, and I think from a from a people executive, uh, you know, working and kind of leading a people function in an organization that that is truly committed to transparency. Um, can be exciting and probably also challenging at times. You know, I, I'm curious from your perspective, where does the kind of commitment to transparency show up for employees in ways that, that they wouldn't see at most other companies?
1: Yeah, so I should first say that our commitment to transparency means we are not the HR organization for everyone. And so we've interviewed countless people for our team where I say, okay, what employee data would you be comfortable sharing out on a regular basis with our entire organization? And you know the answer is essentially nothing, and those types of folks probably aren't the best fit for our team. But one of our roles as people operations team is to be good stewards of that information. So you can imagine there is a natural bias within HubSpot, given that it's part of our culture, to share everything. Uh, and one of our jobs is to find the right balance between our commitment to transparency and then what data actually infringes upon individual privacy or concerns around anonymity, that kind of thing. So, to give you an example, as we think about our survey data, one of the things we do is we maintain confidentiality. So you, we will get some of the backend data that allows us to do good trend analysis on, for example, tenure, gender, location-based feedback. Um, but as a leader, I don't get, a lot of that information is blinded out so that I don't try and go, oh, that was definitely large, or that was definitely this person or this team talking. Um, And so one of our challenges is always playing that delicate dance between our commitment to transparency and then our overall commitment to compliance and the right people for our team are perfectly comfortable in that balance and always perfectly comfortable kind of pushing on that. Um, But one of the things I like about it is it's a really interesting intellectual challenge to figure out how we balance those two things. And by way of example, Uh, a few things that we share we will share so for our diversity and inclusion muscle group we will share high level themes of exit interviews uh we will share um interview feedback from our candidate survey with the entire organization so one of our recruiting operations interns just did a post to the whole company that shares some negative feedback we've gotten from candidates and what we're doing about it you have to be comfortable with that kind of feedback if you're going to join our team and you have to be comfortable that any and all feedback is going to be used to help us grow and so one of the things i hope excites people that join our team is that we really want to build a 21st century hr team and as a result it requires all of us to have a growth mindset and be flexible and willing to learn Because unfortunately, there isn't a school yet that turns out 21st century HR leaders. And so we're creating a bit of a playbook as we grow. We're learning from people we admire as we grow. But none of us, including me, have it all figured out. And so the number one thing I look for when interviewing someone from our team is a comfort level with transparency, but also a comfort and humility with saying they don't know everything and are willing to learn and adapt to the organization as we scale.
0: Yeah. And I think I want to, as you mentioned, kind of 21st century HR, and I wish that school existed. Hopefully uh, we'll be having a different conversation in a couple of years. I think there's uh, more resources these days that are helping kind of shape the profession in that direction, but uh, you know, we still have a ways to go. Uh, one of the, the kind of statements within the culture code that um, stood out to me, and it really, to me, kind of reinforces the um, the difference between you know legacy HR and 21st century HR was you know we don't penalize the many for the mistakes of the few, and to me this is a real uh, kind of thinking linchpin around 21st century HR versus legacy HR, where you know historically the field has been much more kind of uh, so focused around compliance and and risk aversion that we created policies that uh, you know assumed worst case scenario. And built that as if that is, you know, that's what's going to happen. And that's that the policies have to protect against that. Why do you think so many companies, you know, still have that legacy mindset from an HR perspective and really struggle with kind of moving away from that default towards compliance and risk aimed at uh, protecting from worst case scenario rather than, you know, empowering and kind of uh, assuming best intent from their employees?
1: Yeah, this is definitely one of our tenants that inspires the most skepticism, I would say, particularly from uh, more traditional companies, more traditional HR leaders, and more traditional CEOs. And so I think there are a few components to it. One is people are really quick to point out. So for example, the flippant comment I often get when people see this is, have you ever heard of Enron or Theranos? Yeah, <laughs> What I always say to people is those companies didn't have major culture challenges because of a lack of rules and documentation. They had huge issues because their leaders did not walk the walk and they didn't have cultures of transparency where people were allowed to alert or empowered to alert people who really cared to solve those problems and or the people who were supposed to care and oversee them were, you know, asleep at the wheel or not paying attention or not empowered to do that. And so I don't think I have a really hard time thinking of a company that has failed culturally due to a lack of rules and documentation or punishment metrics. I think it's more about kind of enforcement and the true culture and environment that you create for people um and so first things first that's kind of my perspective whether whether that's wrong or right but that's my core perspective on it the second thing i will say is i think one of the reasons it's really hard for people to get their head around heads around this is that At most companies, as you know, HR has historically only been allowed to be reactive. And so you really only bring an HR business partner in or a head of HR in when there is a layoff or a big org change or something bad to communicate. And one of the things we really work on is both empowering, but also asking our leaders and teams to be proactive and thoughtful in how they engage with our team. And so when you see someone from the core HR team, it's not bad news or rough news, it's often because they're there to share something good and are part of celebrating great accomplishments throughout the organization, not just punitive stuff. Uh, And a huge component of it, uh, going back to kind of schools and training, part of that is on CEOs and executives for not letting HR teams in. But part of it is on us as a profession to also think in a more innovative and business driven approach and truly understand the business and how we can create value. Uh, And so I would say that there's change needed both in the front office, but also in all of us as HR leaders and how we approach the problem itself. So for example, oftentimes I'll hear from people, I just want a seat at the table and I don't have a seat at the table. And it's like, well, when it comes to business value, you create a seat at the table, right? You really have to be able to add enough to that conversation that you're not just weighing in where there's a huge compliance issue or a big org change. You are thinking about the skills that are needed to get your company to the next level. You are thinking about the leadership traits that you're missing in your organization and how you're going to partner with leaders to get it. And so I always encourage people from the HR perspective, rather than thinking about how to insert yourself just to be in the room, how do you think about creating value? And then it's a whole lot easier for you to think and brainstorm and act in a way that brings value to the organization. Um, I would say... On this front, as a specific example, one of the things that comes to mind for me was during the whole Me Too movement, you know, many HR leaders and legal departments were just sort of praying and for the best and kind of hiding uh, from their employees, just hoping that something wouldn't come forward. And one of the things I really love about HubSpot is we are one of just 20% of companies with three women on our board. And both the men and the women on our board came to us and essentially said, what are we doing proactively to discuss the movement, to discuss what actions we've already taken and what recourse people have if they want to share or report something. And so we collected a bunch of the stuff we already do, and we're super transparent about it. And one of the things our board did was we'd actively encourage you to proactively say to the organization, here's what we're doing, here's the conversation we had at the board level, and here are all of our resources. And so we worked with our general counsel to share that information out to everyone. And The good news about that is most of our employees were seeing all that in the news, and obviously were worried. Some of them were personally impacted by Me Too incidents at previous companies. And so what we did essentially was get out there to all of our employees of all genders and say, here's how we're protecting and making HubSpot a great place to work for all of our employees. And here are the elements of recourse you have if something goes wrong, God forbid, And I think people really appreciate that proactive transparency. And so rather than thinking about if someone comes forward with something, how are we going to punish them? Let's instead talk about how we're protecting employees daily, how we're training our employees or our managers to be inclusive and thoughtful in their overall approach. And how are we partnering with our board to make this part of our strategic imperative? And if you think about it that way, you're operating less from a place of fear and more from an area of opportunity. And I think that just puts you in a much better mindset to think proactively about engaging your employees and your leaders. Yeah,
0: you know, and I think that that really reinforces the point you made earlier, which is you know proactive versus reactive. you know and I think a lot of organizations, uh, hopefully most organizations were having conversations as that you know as, as the me too and other related conversations started to scale. I think the difference is many of them had them, at the board level or the executive level and didn't really trickle that down. They didn't have that conversation out loud. And so I think from an employee perspective, you you, you don't really know what's, what's happening. You don't really know what your your recourse is. And I think for organizations that uh, with their leadership teams stayed silent and were hoping to not have to react to any internal issues, they they really missed an opportunity to kind of proactively set a narrative within the organization that they... they Are committed to, um, you know, creating an environment where everybody is welcome, where that kind of behavior is not tolerated, and uh, and and that's, you know, frankly, a lot of those organizations can't really go back and do that now because that that was their opportunity to to do that. And they they can, but it's not going to have the same impact as if they were really proactive in the moment while the conversation was was really emerging, um, to to set that tone.
1: And that's where I think you just you build trust, right? So everyone was talking about it. So every dinner party I went to, whether it was my female friends, my male friends, if you worked in anything related to HR, you were getting asked about it. But equally as important, a lot of our incoming candidates who had just graduated, recent graduates, it was top of mind for them. And they were like, is this cool to talk about at work? Am I allowed to bring this up? Am I allowed to talk about the fact that I've had a friend with this experience or So we've had people come interview who essentially say, I was part of a really toxic a non inclusive environment for women. I want to talk about this experience. And I want to make sure and really understand your policies. And as a result, it meant that anyone who is coming in with a strong perspective on this and really with some fear themselves now met with a manager who had a full understanding of what we're doing, said, Of course, it's totally fine to talk about that and ask questions of our team here. You can ask them as part of the interview process. And so I think transparency and it, our commitment to transparency and overall empathy, I think, is very much contagious. And so as a result, when we share internally, it's much more comfortable for people and hiring managers to talk about it externally. And we view that very much as a good thing. And frankly, something that our candidates expect now.
0: Got it. Now that uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the other things that uh, that stood out to me is I think about uh, there, there's, there's a piece of language that you use in the culture code that um, really kind of, uh, you know, connected with me. And it's, it's related to the conversation that I think we're having in HR around um, this idea of culture fit, right? We talk a lot about culture, um, the, the it, legacy conversation has largely been kind of geared around culture fit. I think that narrative is starting to shift towards culture ad and, and not just uh, not just framing it as, as how do you fit people into an existing culture, but how do you enhance the culture through new people and new perspectives, new backgrounds. And, and you had language in the culture deck around you know, your best people don't just fit your culture, they further that. And I'm just curious, where you know where did that come from? Why was that so important to reinforce in the culture code?
1: Yeah, I think on the constructive side of things, one of the things I would say about HubSpot and other companies that have really strong cultures is if you have a really strong culture, it's a wonderful advantage, but it also can sometimes serve as an excuse not to hire someone because they're not like the other people that you work with. And right. so I would say when we first launched the culture ad component, that was aspirational. We weren't quite there yet on enforcing it. And so one of the things we've done over the last year and a half is really gone back and doubled down on the training we provide to people so that it's not okay, like the consummate interview question around culture was always the airplane test. Like, do you want to sit next to this person on an airplane for six hours? And I've never found that to be in any way illustrative of whether or not someone would be a high impact employee. And so we actually had to walk people through what are some questions that actually help us understand if someone is a culture ad? How can you as a recruiter push back if someone says, nah, Lars just wouldn't be a good fit to our team. I just didn't see it. That's not a good reason. You need to provide a specific example. So a good example on that front was, you know, our team's really committed, committed as is HubSpot to humility and in the specific data-driven questions that I asked around humility... I found that he lacked that previous role. And so that's a really good reason not to hire someone. They don't meet one of our values and that kind of thing. They really fell short, but it has an example and it has a quantifiable impact on a recruiter debrief. And so we had to go back and train our team on that stuff. And so one of the things I always say to people is, if you don't have a particularly strong culture, you obviously have to work on developing that. But if you do have a really strong culture, one of your ethical obligations as a leader is to make sure that having a strong culture isn't an excuse to hire for sameness. And saying that is one thing. You actually have to walk the walk on training people how to think about that and how to make sure that they're building teams Uh, Where not only is diversity a priority at the highest level, but you're really arming people with the tools to think about building diverse teams in that interview room. Uh, And it turns out that's a skill. And so we've had to actually go back a bit and rebuild some of those skills and get a little bit more humble around our own approach on that stuff. Uh, And so doing that interview training has been critical to that.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm glad you touched on that point because I think even if conceptually, most employees get it conceptually, but they're they're not they're not equipped without training, oftentimes, to really change their their behavior and kind of how they approach interviews and how they approach evaluations, um, to to really kind of get out of some of their own biases, right? And so I think having um, having that commitment uh, without the coupled, coupling of that with training, uh, I think often falls a bit flat. So kind of seeing that you're you're kind of Going back through and reevaluating your processes based on that, um, I, I think certainly helps make that much more effective. Um, okay, so backing away from uh, from HubSpot's uh, culture deck for a moment. What other culture decks have have you come across that have stood out to you?
1: Uh, I think the penultimate one is Netflix. It hugely inspired ours and has been absolutely critical. Uh, And so that's one of the best decks around. What I actually like is that more people are focusing less on decks and more on video content creation, kind of that kind of thing. And so I think a few other organizations where I really admire some of the things they're doing I think some of the work that Jeff Weiner is doing at LinkedIn around ongoing learning and development, but also their overall commitment to mission is really uh, pretty incredible and staggering and has been really inspiring to see. And then I will also say I really love some of the things that Uh, nonprofits and more mission-driven organizations are doing to capitalize in a good way on the fact that so many people are frustrated right now with the world that we're living in. And so I really admire some of the small nonprofits that have gone back and not just developed donor campaigns on this stuff, but also said, if you want to change the world, there's no better time to do it. And so people often talk about big companies when they talk about culture inspiration. One of the things I always try and go back to and instill in our team is the big companies everyone's learning from. So everyone is looking to Google and Netflix and other companies rightly so to learn from. But oftentimes every startup I've ever visited has something cool that we can learn from and revisit and grow from. So there's a company called Terminus in Atlanta. I did a visit with their team and there were some things that I came back with as I was like, okay, they're doing this better than us. There are some things from scale that we were able to share from them, but I generally assume that every company is doing something better on culture than we are. Uh, and so I garner inspiration both from those great companies with legacy decks, and then from some companies that are trying out innovative content as they scale their own approach here.
0: Great. Well, yeah, I want to kind of continue with the uh, the the inspiration uh, narrative for my my final question for you. You know, a lot of it is we talk about 21st century HR and kind of progressive uh, HR practices, and really this new model of HR. And I think you know you're you're a great example. And as I talk to a lot of CHROs and CPOs, especially. Uh, in organizations that are really kind of embracing modern approaches, a lot of them, you know, look to you as one of the the leaders that they they take a lot of inspiration in in terms of you know new school, progressive people approaches. And I'm curious from you, you know, when you think about leaders in the HR space that inspire you, you know, who who inspires you?
1: That's so flattering, first of all. So thank you to anyone who said that. Uh, for me, there are a few people that stick out. So uh, I mentioned early on that iRobot has had a huge impact on our culture at HubSpot, and I mentioned their CEO, but their CHRO and head of communications, Russ Campanello, is uh You will never hear about him. He is the last person to toot his own horn, Uh, but he is an absolute groundbreaking leader in the core HR space and has been a huge leader in the greater Boston area, so more people should be learning from him. He's amazing. Um, One of the other people I really admire is Emily Nishi, who is the CPO at Lyft, and she came from Google previously. I just think she is... uh, smart, inspiring, no-nonsense, and creative and thoughtful. And so she's part of a CHRO working group that I'm a part of, and I just really like and admire her energy. Uh, and then there's someone else who's actually a, a more of an up-and-comer. She's a deputy at um, at StubHub at the moment, but her name is Heather Neville, and she's someone who works in HR operations. And Uh, She was formerly at eBay, and back in the day, I did a visit with their executive leadership team to learn more about how they did things, and they were wonderfully generous and gracious with their time and energy, their whole team. Uh, was hugely influential on our approach at HubSpot. But one of the things I really like about Heather is she's very data-driven, her approach. She's hugely committed to using data to make HR teams grow better. Uh, and so I really love learning from her then. And I look forward to seeing her continue to do amazing things. But I think the future of HR uh, largely aligns with the skill sets of all those three people. Russ is like a hugely empathic communicator who is an early adopter on diversity and inclusion Emily is a former HR business partner who has a great understanding of the landscape, isn't afraid to say no to hard things, but is super progressive and business-minded. And Heather is the data queen and guru who's truly taking an ops-driven approach. I think that modern CHRO is going to have a combination of those skill sets. And so those are three people who inspire me on a regular basis.
0: Great. Well, I will uh, I will definitely check all of them out and appreciate you sharing uh, where some of your inspiration comes from. So Katie, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing the experience and uh, journey behind the culture code deck. And uh, we really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Lars. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of 21st Century HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this or read stories from the 21st Century HR Fast Company series, go to 21stCenturyHR.com. And if you want to make your podcast just a little more awesome, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform your ears desire. You'll find all the subscribe links on the website. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor and share it with your peers, your network, your boss, and your CEO. Help me get the podcast into the ears of anyone who wants to know what HR and recruiting looks like when done really well. They'll thank you for it, and so will I. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.